Bibles tonight to 2 Timothy chapter number 2, 2 Timothy chapter number 2, and uh, I didn't I didn't mention this, I didn't fill out a card, but do be praying for uh, Carolyn and Sam Hedrick's son Daniel, he tested positive as well, and uh, so you continue lifting him up in prayer, continue to pray for Ronnie and Brenda Barnes, they've been sick under the weather as well, so lift them up, I'm glad God hears prayer, amen, I'll tell you. 2 Timothy chapter number 2 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse 15. Now, uh, if you were here last week, you know that we preached out of uh, some of these verses last week, but I want to read them to give a little context to what uh, Paul is writing to Timothy concerning in this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15, the Word of God says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the, na- on the Lord out of a pure heart. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. Bless your word this evening. Lord, I know that if we were dependent on you to bless me or my preaching, Lord, we certainly would see much lacking. But Lord, I believe your word can be blessed and I believe that your people can be helped by it. And I pray that you'd use your word, use it effectively, use it powerfully in our hearts and minds. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, I love you tonight. Thank you for loving me. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been moving slowly through 2 Timothy chapter number 2. We've spent about five weeks in this chapter. And the theme that we've been following is the sevenfold station of the believer as it is described to us by the Apostle Paul as he's writing to Timothy. And uh, the believer is described in, in seven ways. We've been through five of them already. In verse number 1, Paul says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So here the believer is likened unto a son. Now, while it's true that if you're saved, you're a child of God, you've been birthed into the family of God in this dispensation of grace we're in, uh, and you're part of God's family if you've received Christ as your Savior. But Paul does not here say, Thou therefore God's Son. Uh, He doesn't say, Thou therefore Jesus' Son, or anything to that effect. But rather, he says, My Son. What he's speaking of is the uh, spiritual heritage that he had poured into Timothy's life. I think there's good scriptural evidence that Timothy was probably already saved even before Paul uh, met him. So he's not necessarily distinctly speaking about leading someone to the Lord, uh, but he's talking about having an influence in somebody's life. And he's reminding Timothy, listen, Timothy, somebody invested in your life, you ought to turn around and invest in somebody else's. Every one of us here that's saved, there's somebody shared the gospel with us. We weren't born with that knowledge. Somebody loved us enough, cared about us enough, shared the gospel with us. And probably most of us would acknowledge that we've had people in our life, and it may be one distinct person, but probably we've had many, I've had many in my life, that have taken time to share spiritual and scriptural wisdom with me and to, to affect my life for the glory of God. We owe a debt to those people. Hey, we've been we've had a torch handed to us. We've got to hand it to somebody else. We've got to be willing to pour it into others' lives. 
In verse number 3, Paul says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So here the believer is likened unto a soldier. And uh, we won't say much about it tonight. We've said a lot in the past weeks about it. But suffice it to say, we're living in a time of spiritual warfare. But really, if we're to be honest, the entire New Testament's been a time of uh, spiritual warfare. In fact, we'd go further and say ever since the Garden of Eden, there's been spiritual warfare transpiring. Now you might say, well, preacher, that's, that's good and everything, but what does that mean to me? Well, Peter told us to be sober and be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The greatest way you can make yourself prey to the machinations of the devil is to ignore him, to pretend that he does not exist. One of the wisest uh, Satans I ever heard is that uh, what Satan desires to do is convince the whole world he doesn't exist. If he can convince the world he doesn't exist, he can have his way in this world. But no, we're soldiers. We're to, we're to uh, put on the whole armor of God. We're to engage in this spiritual warfare that is around us day by day. So he's described as a soldier. Verse 5, Paul says, If a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. So here the believer is described as a sprinter. Or really we could say an athlete of any type. But Paul seemed to favor uh, the running sports and, and sprinting and things like that. What I believe Paul's describing here is a man that is uh, in a competition. Uh, he is in a contest and he is striving to win that contest. In another place, Paul talks about how that uh, many people run in a race but only one is crowned the winner. Uh, I don't know that that's politically correct to say anymore uh, like that. Uh, you know, nowadays every kid gets a trophy, amen? Probably part of what's wrong with our world. But uh, the King James Bible says everybody runs but only one wins. And uh, Paul's saying in that you ought to run as though you're running a race and you want to win it. You ought not be apathetic. You ought not have this perspective of, well, it's just enough to finish. Now you might say, preacher, don't nobody feel that way. Oh, sure they do. There's plenty of people whose perspective on the Christian life is, well, you know, by the grace of God, I'm not worse than I than, than I could be. And one of these days, I, you know, God will give me a new body and I'll quit all this sinning. Well, listen, I understand one of these days we'll have a glorified body. I understand one of these days our sin nature is going to be eradicated. But why in the world would you want the Lord to have to come along and just cart you, dragging you along the finish line? Don't you want to run? Don't you want to push? Don't you want to strive and do something for God? And that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about how we need to strive for masteries, but we have to strive lawfully. God cares not just what we do, but how we do it. Verse 6, he says this, The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Here he likens the believer to a farmer, a sower, someone that's taking seed, putting it in the ground in faith and expecting, anticipating a return that's to come back from it. We talked about how that the Lord, uh, He expects more out of our life than He's put into it. Uh, it ought to be that the Lord saves us. We're one person, right? Uh, the Lord saves us, but He ought not just get one soul out of that. He ought to get many souls out of that. We ought to be seeking to win people to Christ. Verse 15, we preached on it last week, says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And here the believers likened to a skilled laborer, particularly as regards the study of God's word. In other words, we ought to, we ought to view the study of God's word like a skilled workman does. And you know, a skilled laborer, a skilled, a master craftsman, here's their criteria for when it's time to quit, when it's perfect when it's perfect. Now, we're not improving on the Word of God, but we are improving on our understanding of the Word of God. And here ought to be the criteria for when we walk away from a passage. We ought to walk away from it once we can say, I know what it says. I know what God's saying to me through it. It ought not just be enough to have somebody's opinion or even just our opinion. We ought to strive to know what God's Word teaches. 
Next week, if the Lord will let us, we'll look at verse 24 where the believer is described as a servant. It says, the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach and patient. And certainly, any anything that parades as Christianity that is not obsessed with servitude is not Bible Christianity. Bible Christianity is a service-oriented uh, Christianity, a service-oriented form of relationship with God. In other words, not exalting ourselves, not trying to jockey for position, but saying, Lord, just put me where you want me. I'll do whatever you want. I'm not here for me. I'm here to serve you in whatever way that you want. But tonight in the passage that we've read, uh, we notice that the believer is described as a sanctified vessel. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. The Bible says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Now, sort of like when we talked about the the, the sprinter back earlier in, in verse number 5, I believe it was, whenever Paul talks about striving for the mastery, and we sort of zeroed in on, on sprinting, but it really could be any sort of athletics. The term vessel can mean uh, really, any sort of utensil that's used for any purpose. But normally when we see the word vessel in the Bible, it's associated with something that is a container for the purpose of holding something else. In fact, what we'll think about tonight is the idea of a cup. Probably in your house, uh, we've got a cup cabinet. You've got a cup cabinet where we keep all the cups. We've got, and there's a shelf for coffee cups, even though I don't drink coffee, but we've got a blue million of them. So we've got a coffee cup shelf and then, then we've got uh, where our mason jars sit. Not because we're moonshiners, amen, just because we like to drink tea out of mason jars. But we've got, we've got a cabinet where we put all of our cups. And we keep them there and we maintain them there whenever we're, they're, they're dirty. We wash them. At least I hope we do. We wash them. And then we put them in the cabinet and that's where they are. And we want it someplace easy to reach up and grab one. Because if you're uh, like me, all throughout the day, I've got something that I'm drinking. Uh, there's never a day when I'm not, I don't just go out. I mean, if I, if I leave the house, I got a bottle of water. I got a bottle of, of sweet tea. I've got a cup of sweet tea. I've got a jug of sweet tea. I've got a thermos of sweet tea. I've got, I've got something to drink every time that I leave the house. I want it there handy, uh, and, and accessible. And, you know, when you think about what the Apostle Paul pins down here, it sort of makes sense when you think about the life of the believer. And we'll look at that tonight and why that is. But before we get there, I want you to look back with me at verse 19. Now, this is where we left off last week. And I want to give a little bit of context here, uh, both to the overall theme of this passage and then maybe to some of the things that Paul is distinctly speaking about. But look what it says in verse 19. It says, nevertheless... Now, what's he been talking about? He's been talking about false teachers. Earlier in the passage, he was talking about false teachers, people that were abusing the Word of God and were destroying people's minds and their hearts and their lives as a result of it. But he reminds Timothy that the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Something that I've learned in pastoring, and you'll learn if you if you are a uh, student of the Word of God and if you care about the truth of the Word of God, is that when you start... Uh, when you start purging your thought life and your doctrinal perspective, it's going to cause some enemies. When you start being willing to look at some things and say, I disagree with that, I think that's wrong, I don't think that's correct, I think that's heresy, I think it's going to bring about some hostility. Uh, you see this in particular with television preachers. I don't know why it is. I guess because we're all obsessed with television. 
But everybody has their favorite television preachers, and I got a problem with all of them because I ain't on TV. Amen. But uh, but when you start saying something about any of them, you know, pet preachers and stuff, people get all twisted up. Well, now this is nothing new. The reason I think that Paul wrote this to Timothy is he's telling Timothy to clean house at the church desk. He's saying, you've got some people in there, wolves in sheep's clothing, that are destroying people's lives. And Timothy, you've got to deal with this problem. And he reminds Timothy of this. Listen, there's going to be some people that are going to despise you. There's going to be some people going to hate you. There's going to be some people going to lie about you and criticize you and call you mean and hard-hearted and legalist and everything else. But just remember, Timothy, the Lord knoweth them that are His. If we please the Lord in what we're doing, that's all that matters. He knows those that are His. And to that, he adds this, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, he talks here in a moment about these vessels, some of wood and earth and some of gold and silver. And you'll find some pretty varying and eclectic opinions about what those vessels are representative of. But I sort of see there's two possibilities. I'll give you both of them and and, uh, you know, you, you can come up and tell me which one I'm wrong about later and feel real good about it. But it's possible that what he's saying when he talks about these vessels is habits or behavior in the life of the believer. Now, here's the reason I say that. Because he tells him, if you want to be a sanctified vessel, you've got to purge these things out of your life. So he could be talking about habits and behaviors and actions of the believer uh, that are inappropriate, that are not supposed to be there, that are a blemish upon their testimony, although I'll be the first to admit it's sort of strange language if that's what he's saying. Because if Timothy is a vessel, sort of leads you to believe the vessels he talks about in verse 20 are probably people as well. And being that he's just been talking about false teachers and saying you need to get them out of the church and out of your life, it makes a lot of sense that what Paul may be saying is you need to purge the church of those people. Let me say this, really, I think there's an application one way or the other. You know why? Because who you run with will sooner or later determine what you are. You run with the wrong vessels. Sooner or later, Brother Ken, you'll be the wrong kind of vessel. You let the wrong kind of people in your life, they'll bring the wrong kind of things in your life, and sooner or later they'll sully your testimony for Christ. And so the principle of this whole passage he gives in verse 19, and this is it, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. He's going to talk about being a clean vessel and a pure vessel, and we'll say a word about it before we're done, but it's all encapsulated in that phrase. What do we find there? Well, first I see our directive. We're commanded to depart from iniquity, not to camp out close to it, not to visit it occasionally. We are commanded to depart from iniquity. The term depart does not mean merely to go away for a little while, but it means to depart with permanence. It means to walk away from it once and for all. Now somebody's going to say, now wait a minute preacher, don't, you know, you're telling me that you don't ever sin? No, listen, I sin probably more than you do. I can just get away with it better. But I, I, the, I'm not saying I don't sin. You're supposed to laugh there. It kind of makes me worried you didn't. I'm wondering what you think about me now. <laughs> but I, no, I'm not saying I don't sin. I sin, you sin. Everybody does. We all have infirmed flesh. But here's part of our problem in getting victory over sin. We walk away from it, but we want to keep visitation rights. 
we walk away, but we give occasion to the flesh. And we say, well, you know, I, I'm done with it for now. No, listen, if you're really repenting, you're, you're done with it for good. Now, you've got a weak flesh like mine does. And I'm not saying that uh, when you tell God that you're done with that sin, that that means that uh, that's an ironclad guarantee you're never going to sin again. If you think it is, you'll probably live in discouragement. But we ought to walk away. We should not just depart for a little while from iniquity. We ought to walk away from it for good. So that's the directive. And then notice our description. It says, the name of, he that nameth the name of Christ. Now, why should we be doing this? Well, because if we're believers, we name the name of Christ. Oh, what does that mean to name the name of Christ? Well, every time a man says, I'm a Christian, he's naming the name of Christ. To be a Christian means to be Christ-like. Probably if anybody asked you, said, you know, what, what do you believe? What, what are you? You'd say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Christ. You know, that that means something. It doesn't just mean something as regards where we have vested our hope for eternity. But it ought to mean something, and it does mean something in the eyes of the world. When you say, I'm a Christian, they take you to be an example of what a Christian is. We name the name of Christ. And as such, we ought to live like Christ does. We ought to depart from iniquity. And then notice our declaration. I, I thought this was interesting. It says, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, earlier in the verse, here's what he said. He said, the Lord knoweth them that are his. In other words, the Lord knows who belongs to him and who don't. And then he turns around and says, but you're walking around saying that you know God. And if you're walking around telling people that you know God, you better depart from iniquity. Nobody's making you say that. In other words, we're the ones that choose to do that. Why should we depart from iniquity? Because we're the ones yoking our name to Christ. He died for the whole world, right? He died for the whole world. We're the ones saying, I choose Christ. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. And if we're going to say that, we ought to respect that. We ought to reverence that. So this is the principle of the passage. We ought to depart from iniquity. And he uses this analogy of, of a great house with vessels of gold and of silver, wood and earth, and how that applies to our life to drive this point home. Now let's notice a few thoughts here. First I want you to notice the material of the vessel. In verse 20 it says there's four kinds of vessels. And really we could maybe say two broad categories of them. And, and, and then two within each of those. There are those made of precious metals. Those that have value and those that have glory and esteem and honor. Those that are made of gold and silver. He says, but also of wood and of earth. And then he says this about them. Some to honor, some to dishonor. Now, we don't have to be a great and wise theologian to understand what Paul's saying here and which category that we want to be. Now, there's nothing wrong with a cup made of wood. There's nothing wrong with a cup that's made of clay or of earth. But we do understand that if a person had the choice between the two, he'd want the gold and he'd want the silver. Paul is drawing a stark distinction between the character and way that people live. And he's saying God has a desire, not merely that we be the bare minimum of functionality, but that we be the best that we can possibly be. If we were to apply this to the house of God, then certainly those that are faithful, those that love the Lord, those that serve selflessly, those that uh, that, that uh, sacrifice uh, spiritually and financially and of their time and of their energy, to the things of God, those would be the people of gold and of silver. And certainly those that just get the job done. After all, that's what a cup made of wood or of clay is for, right? It's just to get the job done. I wonder how many folks look at their Christianity as though they're just trying to get the job done and not give their absolute best 
to the glory of God. God prefers the vessels made of gold and silver. And by the way, it's not because God's greedy. Number one, it's His gold and silver. You're going to have to dig it out of His earth to get to it. But then number two, uh, he, He paves the street of gold in the New Jerusalem. So it's not that God needs the money, but He understands a few important things. Notice number one, uh, the gold and silver ones are made of special material. Gold and silver are precious metals. They're held in high esteem of God. Now, not the metals themselves, but He is using this as an analogy to say believers that are pure, believers that are devoted, believers that are dedicated are held in high esteem in God's regard. You know, the sad truth of it is in much, and, I, and I'm here to preach to Walridge tonight. I'm not here to preach to every church across town. But the sad reality is in so much of modern day Christianity, the things that are revered and valued in the house of God are not the same things that God reveres and values. Uh, talent, and God's not against talent. If you've got any, God give it to you. Uh, I, he's not against talent, but talent is not high on the list of what God regards as as meaningful. Uh, money, if you've got money, God give it to you and, and praise the Lord for that. I don't begrudge you a bit of it. Amen. If, you, if, you're, if you're unhappy with it, give it to me. I'll spend it. I'm not opposed to it, but money don't mean a lot in, in God's economy. Beauty don't mean a lot in God's economy. Really, brains don't mean a lot in God's economy. He can make a donkey speak his word when he wants him to. So what matters in God's economy? Well, things like faithfulness, things like honesty, Things like loving those that are not easy to love, grace, mercy. These are the things that God values. So these gold and silver vessels, they're made of special material. God esteems them highly. And you mark her down. God's economy of what's valuable looks drastically different than the world's does. And as the church begins to look more like the world, then God's value system looks drastically different than the way a lot of church value systems look. We ought to value the things that God values. Number two, it's made of a sanitary material. Now, you might say, preacher, why is that? Uh, well, think about this. Wood and clay may pollute the water. Because it's a weaker substance, there's more organic material that's that's found in it that, that could dislodge, that could be loose, that could, could bleed its way into whatever is contained within it. And gold and silver, while they're not uh, entirely immune from that, certainly they are more impervious to that danger. In other words, here's what God wants, and we'll say a word about it here in a moment, uh, but He wants the kind of servant that He can put something in them, and what they are does not pollute what He put in them. You listen carefully. What we are is sinful flesh. It's what we are. God wants to be able to pour things in our life and pour things out of our life without them being tainted and polluted and muddied by our sinful nature. Now, while it's true, every single one of us is sinful and fallen and we cannot help but to some degree operate in infirmity. Uh, the more that we mortify self and the more that we depend on the Lord and live in His strength, and allow His guidance to be the governance of our life, the less that who and what we are rubs off on what God's doing in our life. You say, preacher, how can we make sure that don't happen? Go ahead and mortify self. Die daily, like Paul said, and you'll find God will be able to get more out of your life. And then I thought about this. It's made out of a strong material. Wood can be easily broken, and clay even more easily, but gold and silver are much, much stronger. In other words, what does God value in His economy system? Well, He values strength that is meaningful. Now, strength that is meaningful is God's strength. Our strength is not meaningful. Our strength is brittle. Our strength is shallow. And that's why God has to bring us to the end of our strength. 
Uh, but the strength that gold and silver has, it has because God created this world with the properties uh, of, of minerals such the way they are. God imbued to those precious metals the strength that they have and the strength that they contain. In other words, that strength is strength that comes from God. You know, in, in our life, the strength that matters is the strength that comes from God. Physical strength, strength of resolve, strength of mind, strength of will is meaningless if it's not rooted in and sourced in the Word of God and the strength of God. Paul learned this when he came to the Lord in weakness and, and God said, yeah, Paul, you're right where I want you to be. I want you to be weak because in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. And, you know, the psalmist even made this statement that God had weakened his strength. He was strong and God weakened him. Why did he do that? So that his own strength could shine through his servant. Uh, in other words, like God said to Paul, when, when you're weak, Paul, then I am strong. So I think about the material of the vessel that's described here. But then I notice the mandates of the vessel. So what is Paul commanding Timothy to do? Verse 21, he says, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. So what does God want out of a vessel? Well, three things very simply here. One, uh, it has to be clean. It has to be clean. That normally is a pretty fundamental requirement of a cup if you're going to use it. Uh, it don't necessarily have to be pretty. It don't necessarily have to be ornate. But you definitely want it to be clean. Uh, the reason why is because you don't want anything that's in there. And I've always been of this philosophy. If the dishwasher can't take it off, then whatever I'm drinking can't either. Amen? Anybody like me? I mean, that's just good old common sense, right? Rich knows what I'm talking about. He's nodding his head back there. He knows. If the dishwasher and that hot water and that Don dish soap couldn't take it off, and, you know, milk or sweet tea or whatever I'm drinking ain't going to take it off. But in an ideal scenario, what you really want is you want something to be perfectly clean. The Lord says you've got to purge yourself from these things. Now, nine times out of ten, when you go to reach and you've got a choice, Brother Kim, between a clean cup and a dirty cup, it don't matter which cup it is. You'll always reach for the clean one. It don't matter if it's your favorite cup there, but it's dirty. You won't reach for that one. It don't matter if it's the prettier or more valuable cup because for the task at hand, above and beyond all things, it has to be clean. Are you really hearing what I'm saying tonight? I'm saying it doesn't matter how much talent we have. It doesn't matter how much knowledge we have. It doesn't matter how much will that we have. At the end of the day, if we're not clean, God won't reach for us. When it's time to pour something in and it's time to pour something out, when it's time to use somebody... First and foremost, he's going to say, I want a clean vessel. Now, again, he could be talking about individuals. And certainly, let me go ahead and say it, we ought to purge ourselves from, from individuals that either doctrinally or morally or, or whatever it might be, relationally are impure and that we shouldn't be around. But I just remind you, even beyond those things, the sin that so often permeates our life, if we want God to put his hand on us, we've got to be a clean vessel. Number two, he says this, if a man therefore purge himself from these, what will happen? He shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use. Now, the, the word sanctified is a word that has basically two sides to it. Sanctified can mean something that is pure or clean, something that's being cleansed. But more often than not in your Bible, what the word sanctified means is something that's set apart for a distinct task. And here's what the Lord's saying. If you'll get your life clean in my eyes, then you'll be set apart, ready. He uses this term, meat, for the master's use. What does it mean to be meat? It means prepared unto it. 
That's what it means. That prepared unto it. So here's what he wants. He wants us to be consecrated. Consecrated. A cup only exists for one reason. For something to be poured in it. And for something to be poured out of it. It don't exist for any other reason. And you know your life and mine. You know why we breathe? You know why we draw a breath? You know why our brain, whatever, to whatever capacity it functions, you know why it does it? You know why our heart beats? You know why God lets us live? It's so that He can use us. It's why we live. It's why we're here. I think sometimes we have a narrow perspective on just how vast this universe is, how many people are walking around on this earth, and how easily and quickly it would be for God to snuff us out of existence. We live and we live with purpose. We may not live walking in that purpose, but we do have purpose for how we live. And what is that purpose? We ought to be set apart above and beyond anything else. We ought to be set apart for the Master's use. Our life ought to exist to please Him. Our, our life should exist so that He can be honored by it. If you're living for anything else, you're living below your purpose, below your calling, below what Christ saved you to and for. We ought to be consecrated, set apart. And then we have to be compliant. He says, meet for the Master's use and prepared unto every good work. You know, some cups in, in your cupboard are, are meant for certain things. Uh, there are certain cups that we have. We, we've got little kids, of course, and, and so, you know, we've got their drinking cups up there and they've got all these gnarly lids and I don't know why they make kids' cups the way they do. None of the lids match anymore. If you're looking for random lids that don't match anything, come see me after the service tonight. I'll hook you up because we, we've got a bunch of them. And um, then, you know, like we said, we, we've got coffee cups for, for we don't drink much coffee. Leah drinks more than I do. She has to put up with me, so she needs it. And uh, I'll drink milk out of them or something like that. Uh, and then we got mason jars. We've got we've got wide mouth mason jars for when nobody's uh, at home. The big ones, you know, because that's what. And then when we have company over and we want to seem real refined, we use the, the smaller ones. And um, and then we've got a few cups that we've kept when we've gone places and stuff like that. But each of them has a distinct purpose. But you know, really, at the end of the day, it's not the cup's job to decide what it's used for. The cup ought to be ready for any task. That it's set to. It's the person that grabs the cup that decides what it is best suited for. I've never grabbed hold of a cup and it started speaking to me and said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're fixing to drink coffee out of me? I'm sorry, son. That is not what I'm for. No, the cup don't talk back because, listen, it's an inanimate object. It's almost as though that cup is lifeless. Almost as though that cup don't have any life of its own. It only moves when I move it. It only, it's only of use when I use it. It's only, it's only dirtied when I dirty it. It's only clean when I clean it. And that's why I use it. Because I'll tell you this, I wouldn't want a cup that could get up and walk off and do its own thing. I wouldn't want a cup that could decide when it wants to be used and when it doesn't want to be used. I wouldn't want a cup that says I can only be used for this, but not for this. And sort of gets you thinking about our life and how we do God. Because at the end of the day, it's not our job to tell them what we're fit for. It's not our job to tell them what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. It's only our job to be clean and to be available. He has to be compliant, prepared unto every good work. Wherever the Master puts it, that's where it needs to be. And then I thought about, I ain't going to say a lot about this, I, but, but, but I wanted to mention it before we're done. I thought about the making of the vessel. Now, there's a lot of ways you could make a, a cup, but the ones here in this passage... They're cups made of gold and of silver. And I thought about how that cup is made 
be used. What, what is involved? Well, number one, it has to be heated. It's got to go in the fire, Brother Ken. If that gold and that silver, it don't come out of the hill or, or, or out of the rock or, or up from the stream bed as a cup. No, it's got to be heated and melted down. It's got to lose all of its own identity and brought to a place of nothingness before it can be used. It's got to be heated. You know, sometimes in our life what God's doing, He's throwing us into the fire. And the reason He's doing that is to strip away all of the identity in us that's not Christ. All of us that would stand in opposition to the will of God and the will of Christ in our life. And he's trying to strip all those impurities away and, and all of those useless things away. It has to be heated. Number two, it has to be hammered. It has to have the drive of force to make it what it needs to be. Something I've learned with my two boys. Lauren, they have completely different personalities. And um, Lawrence wants to please as a general rule. He desires to make us happy. He desires to please us. And for him, you know, it's not that big of a deal. If he's, if we need him to do something, we don't have to get the hammer out. We just got to sort of almost like the potter and the clay, just sort of mold him a little bit. But now Schofield, Schofield has his own life that he's living. And as such, he's a little more hard-headed. We were riding in the car the other day. I'm going to tell you this. We were riding in the car the other day and, and he was doing something and Leah was telling him what to do. She wasn't even fussing at him. But just, just holler back at him and said, Schofield, don't do that. He said, Mom, calm down. Calm down. Now, he's two. I know he didn't hear me do that because I got better sense than to say that to her. So I don't know where he heard that. Sometimes... He requires the hammer. Lawrence can just be mold. Sometimes Schofield, he requires the hammer. I know when you're his heart, and he don't get it from his mama. He gets it from me. Sometimes when God wants to make me what I have to be, I need the hammer. Sometimes God has to force me to do things that I otherwise would not do. Put me in situations I don't want to be in. Make me do things that I would never choose to do because I've got my own life I'm living. And that ain't good enough because I'm just a cup. And a cup ain't got no right to live its own life. It's an inanimate object. And then you know what it needs to do when they're making it. They gotta heat it up, you know, and melt it all together. Then they gotta hammer it. And then they have to hollow it. You know, it's not the embellishment of the cup, but the tin that makes it useful. An ugly cup drink just as good as a nice cup. It is not the external embellishment. It's not the additive. It's not the things that are put on the cup that make it a better cup. Rather, it's the emptying of anything obstructive that makes the cup useful. It's not the things you put on the outside that stick out. Rather, it's that hollow place that you dig out on the inside. It's the things you take away that make the cup more useful. And the more you take away, the more the cup can hold. If I ain't preaching to you, that's fine, but the Holy Ghost is talking to somebody in this room. I don't know who it is. That's all right. I don't have to know. It's the things God takes out of our life. And sometimes the more He takes out, the more He can put in. It's the making of the vessel. And then finally, and I'll be done tonight, I see the maintenance of the vessel. It might be easy to think that verse 22 is not connected. But see, I think it is. Because I think that he Paul has declared a principle. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And then he has he's disclosed an illustration to, to convey that truth. And I think he makes this closing statement in verse 22. 
And I think it has to do with the maintenance of the vessel. You see, if the vessel's going to keep being used, there's there's some things that are required of it. And I, I think he sort of jettisons the analogy and he just basically says, Timothy, you need to get your church clean, get your life clean, get everything right, let God use you. And when you do, if you want to stay right, here's some things that you need to do. First, flee also youthful lusts. Uh, Paul says, Timothy, you got to flee the wrong things. you got to run from them like, like they're an angry hornet's nest. You've got to run from them like they're going to do you harm because they're going to do you harm. And I wonder if Paul may be wanting thinking a little bit about what we preached on on Sunday night and Jacob running away from Potiphar or Joseph running away from Potiphar's wife. When Joseph got out of there, he, he wasn't just running from her. He was running from him. He said, Preacher, how do you know that? I don't know what she looked like. The Bible ain't a picture book. Don't have no pictures of her. But chances are, if she thought she could turn this young man's head, she was probably... Pretty good look. And when Joseph ran, it wasn't because he wasn't interested in her. If he wasn't interested in her, he might not have ran. But he ran because he's running not just from her, he's running from himself. He was fleeing those youthful lusts. we got to flee the wrong things. Part of our problem is we get everything right in our life. We're, we're a clean cup. We're ready for God to use for about ten minutes. And then we run right back to the things that we just departed. Remember he told them that. He said, depart from iniquity. And then he says, you got you got to run from sin, but you also got to run from self, Timothy. You cannot allow yourself to go back to those things. Number two, he says this, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace. So it's not just fleeing the wrong things. We need to be following the right things. We're not just running from something, Brother Ken. We're running to something. We're trying to become what God wants us to be. And I don't have the time to expound on those four things, but suffice it to say, if we pursue after that righteousness, being right in the eyes of God... Faith, living a life of effectual dependence upon God. Charity, loving people like Christ loves people. And peace, seeking to have the peace of God in our life and seeking to see peace in the lives of others. If we'll follow after those things. I find this, that uh, if a cup stays empty long enough, somebody will grab it and use it, whether it's their cup or not. You ever worked in an office where everybody's got their own cup, walked in one day, somebody's using your cup, and you about lost it on them? If it sits there empty with nobody using it long enough, somebody will grab it and somebody will use it. So in other words, it's not just the things we we depart from, but it's putting the right things in our life. And then finally, and I'm done, he says, flee also youthful us, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Fellowshipping with the right crowd. We've got to flee the wrong things. We've got to follow the right things. And then we've got to fellowship with the right people. You know, God's called us to separation, but He hadn't called us to isolation. It's the natural condition of the believer to be in fellowship with other believers. Uh, Part of the things that we've seen over the past year is the radical psychological and I'd say spiritual destructive force of isolation on our society. God didn't create us to be that way. And particularly so, double so as God's people, God did not create us to live alone Uh, in isolation from other believers. He desires for us to be fellowshipping with the right people. Isn't it always so funny? I don't know, maybe it's an organization thing, but all the cups in my house are in the same cupboard. Aren't they? They they like that in your house? I mean, you got a Tupperware drawer that you don't know what lives in there, but I'm talking about all the cups you use. They're all in the same cabinet, aren't they? My cups never said, hey, put me with the other cups, but that's just what we do, isn't it? My plates are with the plates. My cups are with the cups. My bowls are with the bowls. It, you know, it's almost like we have this 
this understanding that those things need to be in the same place where they can be reached for conveniently and easily. And you know, believers ought to be together. We need other believers. We need fellowship with each other. I know you believe that. You're here on a Wednesday night. I, I, I know that. Uh, but I'm just saying, you can't... Part of the reason we don't last no more than five steps on the return trip from the altar is because we go out of here and think that we can handle the whole world on our own without the Holy Ghost and without the Word of God and without the accountability and help of other believers. Maybe if we'd look to that support system of strength God's given us, we'd find that we can maintain that clean vessel a little longer. Let's bow together tonight. Let's pray together. Let's have somebody come and play. And, uh, you know, if God spoke to your heart, why don't you find a place down here? It all begins by getting that cup clean, getting that vessel clean. And, uh, listen, you may, you may have, you may have some soaked in stains, been there a long time. Uh, you may have just some small debris that's just arrived there. Uh, you may have some big things that have, uh, soiled and, and sullied your vessel for God. Whatever it is, can I tell you, God's able to clean you of it. He's able to make you right, make you what you need to be. Father, bless this invitation. Pray you glorify your Son in Jesus' name. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed.